This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm joined by friends of the Auto-Inflammatory Society. Um, we bring, brought together people who are very interested in Stills disease, auto-inflammatory disease. I'm joined by Bella Meta and Olga Petrina from New York City and Michael Umbrello from the NIH. And we're going to talk auto-inflammatory. So um, let's begin with Bella. Bella, and, and I want everybody to sort of tell us your favorite uh, presentation at the meeting. And let's see what, how that sort of impacts the rest of us. Bella? Hi, um, so thank you for having us here. And I uh, really liked one of the abstracts. Um, it's a, a randomized control trial for anakinra in Stills disease. Uh, and it's very difficult to do randomized control trials in these sort of uh, uh, rare diseases. So um, they had a placebo arm, a control arm, uh, and they also looked at um, a, a time point for two weeks. This is a daily injection. Um, so at two weeks, they looked at the ACR30 responses and no fevers. And pretty much everybody who was in the treatment arm um, reached that ACR30. Um, and they also followed these patients over 12 weeks. And everybody at least reached an ACR70, if not an ACR90, uh, which was one patient who didn't. Uh, and none of the people in the placebo arm reached uh, any of the endpoints of the study. So I think it's an important study because uh, first we're demonstrating, I mean, all of us know that there is IL-1 pathology in Stills disease, but this is a good demonstration of how, uh, you know, how it compares with the placebo. So I think it's an important study. So these were adults or children? So there were uh, a few adults and a lot more uh, children. So in, in the 12 patients that were in the trial, nine were adults and three, sorry, nine were children and three were uh, adults. Very interesting. So one of the biggest problems in these trials, and I, I'd be interested in everybody else's opinion, is outcome measures. So what was brilliant about this study was a two-week outcome measure, which is really what it takes to control systemic disease. Two weeks is not enough to control arthritis, but yet the outcome measures for these trials has been the ACR20 or the, 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 the JCR30 and, and no fever. Um, what, how are we going to handle this? Michael, you run a, a Stills clinic. Um, if you were designing a trial, what would be your primary endpoint? I think it depends on when you initiate therapy, because I think that there's emerging evidence in the systemic JIA Stills arena that when you treat early, you actually uh, improve outcomes. You, you can even avoid developing arthritis or especially chronic arthritis. And so perhaps if you're treating early prior to the onset of frank arthritis, uh, just looking at amelioration of systemic inflammation is the good primary endpoint. If you're entering later, once the arthritis has developed or become ingrained, then maybe you need to start to look at other outcomes. But perhaps we need to move away from the hybrid arthritic outcomes that, we, that come from rheumatoid arthritis and other arthritic disorders and think about this early as more of a, a purely auto-inflammatory phenotype. Exactly. True. I like, I, I think that's a very good point, but the, there's a practical aspect to it. So a lot of Stills disease patients that I see, they come in pretty late. Um, so it's so even the diagnosis is a problem. So it takes two or three months referral to referral, going to uh, ID, I don't know, like a, a lot of uh, other physicians before they actually see somebody and get the diagnosis. So that, that's a delay that we all need to 
sort of educate and make sure that the patients are referred early. I think you're exactly right about that, Bella. I think that in the pediatrics community, uh, there's a, there's earlier recognition of these these fever syndromes or recurrent fevers, whereas in the adult community, there's more causes or more possible explanations, and so people don't get recognized as pathological fever not related to an infection. True. Uh, I mean, I have patients who come in with like PET scans and bone marrows and all of this whole slew done before like a ferritin level, right? Or like something simple. So I think there's a delay of diagnosis, which is also, um, I hope uh, we address that. Uh, well, I think it is helping. The pediatric community has come up with some guidelines for what we might call active systemic disease um, and ways of quantifying that and using some of those tools and incorporating those at least as secondary outcome measures might help clinical trial design in the future. Let's go on. And by the way, if everyone, uh, whoever's talking should have their mic on, whoever's not gonna have their mic off, that will give us better sound. So Olga, what was uh, a standout for you? So um, I was actually very interested in the measurement of outcomes or changing outcomes in Stills disease and complications of Stills disease. So I, I particularly like the abstract speaking about implementation of evidence-based guidelines uh, for treatment of macrophage activation syndrome and HLH. And we all know it's a very serious complication often leading to, to mortality in patients when it's not recognized early on. So in this particular abstract, authors from Boston Children's Hospital, Children's Hospital uh, implement, developed and implemented guidelines to how diagnose and treat uh, MAS early. And it made a huge difference. In their studies, they say that they show that actually post-implementation of the guidelines, the time from, to diagnosis was shortened from eight and a half to three days their hospital stay and time to treatment shortened significantly as well. And most importantly, their survival rate improved tremendously. So from initial 75% survival rate, they went up to 93.3% survival rate. I think it's a huge improvement and it's a very important um, um, way of uh, approaching this condition to, to change the outcomes. Also, when it comes to treatment options uh, that, that they used, it changed also with the guidelines. So when patients were diagnosed and treated early, they tend to use like IVAG more often, they used anakindra more often. So it was more targeted therapy rather than dispersing on blanketed immunosuppression. And it also probably contributed to better outcomes in those patients. Really interesting. Um, you know, obviously HLH, HLH like MAS, high mortality rate, earlier diagnosed, the better they're going to do. So this makes a lot of sense. I think maybe the greatest thing, I mean, it's great that we have these criteria because then it gives you something to teach with, but I think it's index of suspicion and awareness that really makes the big change here. Having a center interested in this and studying this, they showed the obvious benefits, but now we need more centers to be aware of this and study this. Uh, who else uh, is plagued by um, either MAS or HLH? And I also believe that, uh, you know, now that we use so much technology and medical records uh, in our patient care, it's so easy to actually set triggers. Let's say high ferritin le uh, levels, a fever of unknown origin. If you put those flags on, on medical records and it, and it brings up those patients who may be at a high risk for MAS, like you can easily pick them up and treat them, treat them early. So it's very much doable these days. 
And that is certainly an approach that's being implemented by a number of people in the pediatric rheumatology MAS community is just having a hospital wide or a system wide flag on ferritin, for example. I guess, again, a pediatric community is much sort of ahead of the curve compared to the adult community. Even in, you know, even right now, it's so difficult for the ICUs to set up such protocols. And even though ICUs see much more MAS than say probably an ER, um, but still, I think the referrals come in a little later than what we think they should. All right, that's excellent. Um, Michael, what uh, caught your fancy from the meeting? So there was an abstract at the meeting that was particularly interesting to me, and it was a poster, so it might have been overlooked by many people. Um, this was a poster out of Fabrizio Di Benedetti's group presented by Mariana Rossi. It was poster number 172. Uh, and this poster has potentially real implications for personalized medicine and Stills disease. Um, two years ago, my group and I identified a set of SNPs in the IL-1 receptor antagonist IL-1RN promoter that correlated with the level of expression of that gene. And we found that the low expression form of the haplotype conferred risk of disease, but that people who had the high expression form of the haplotype actually didn't really respond to treatment with anakinra, had a very large odds ratio predicting non-response. So we thought that this was important for therapeutic biomarker and potentially identifying the specific correct treatment for people. A German group in March of this year published their cohort study where they were unable to, to replicate our finding. They found that there wasn't an association of these SNPs in their cohort. And furthermore, there wasn't a relationship with uh, treatment response. And so we were a bit uh, saddened by this possibility because it was very promising. This is an important thing, identifying the correct first treatment in people with systemic JIA. So the group from, from Rome, Fabrizio Di Benedetti's group, um, they looked at a big cohort of patients who they had treated in a relatively standardized way, and they looked at the outcome. Their specific outcome was to identify individuals who, um, who had disease-free um, uh, uh, conditions on anakinra um, uh, without glucocorticoids. And what they found was that there was a strong correlation, first of all, between these SNPs in the promoter region and the blood levels of uh, IL-1-RN mRNAs in the patients. So we hadn't looked in the patients before. So they demonstrated that this follows through in the patients. Second, they found that early treatment, independent of anything else, just clinical early treatment within the first three months of disease, positively correlated with better responses to anakinra than treatment after three months of, of, of features or diagnosis. And finally, they found that people that carried one or more of these high expression alleles had a, a six-fold higher risk of non-response to anakinra treatment as compared to uh, people who had none of those alleles. Uh, this was independent of all clinical risk factors. So this is important because this validates the possibility that we can use genomics to identify the people who aren't going to respond to IL-1-mediated therapy and can initially choose IL-6-directed therapy or perhaps IL-18 or interferon gamma-directed therapy or even in the future IL-18-directed therapies. Did, did they see, or has anybody seen, that the ones who are non-responders because of the high expression SNPs that they're more likely to have more severe disease or progress to MAS? They didn't identify a correlation in their study of either severe disease or macrophage activation syndrome. I haven't seen their work published in its final form, but in the abstract, I didn't note that. And in our cohort, the clinical data that we had weren't granular enough to really identify that kind of a correlation in a small, a small group. And that's part of the problem is that th these are relatively small studies, 40, 50, 60 patients um, uh, stratified into a responder and a non-responder group. Well, this is important because I think that rheumatologists um, adults I can speak to are, um, are very habit driven and they, they tend to play the same card 
and some of them are still playing a TNF inhibitor card uh, after pre prednisone. And, um, and then there are others who, because of like the IL-1, IL-6, you know, they're more familiar with IL-6, they'll use IL-6 first, you know, whatever. And, and, and I, I, dis I like the idea that people are gonna get early aggressive treatment. I'm worried about there's indiscriminate use without any real guidance and something like this could be really a big advantage. I agree. I think that opening the door for using the right treatment in the right person at the right time, early being the right time, genetics defining the right treatment is the way that we make the most people better with Stills disease. So this was, uh, Michael, this was only adults, or sorry, only pediatric or even some adults in the study? I believe that this was all children in this study. You know, we saw this, uh, a group of mine um, that were reviewing abstracts, we saw this and of course, we're drawn to um, the authors on the paper. Um, and I think that I couldn't convince my colleagues that this was really important um, for you know, this relatively unusual rare disease that, um, but this still could be very, very important. But I think it'd be really exciting to look at the, the full paper. And now as you develop more colleagues and collaborations, this would be a very interesting thing to take forward. Very cool. Uh, I want to end with um, the, the Vexus syndrome, and not because I live in Texas um, and, and can now accuse the authors of misspelling um, their, their syndrome, um, but the Vexus syndrome was, uh, as you know, recently published in New England Journal. It's a, a new, um, uh, um, you know, linked condition where we now know that somatic mutations of uh, UBA1 um, has a clinical correlate, and the uh, I heard about this. I heard some rumblings about this. My partner said something about the New England Journal paper, which I hadn't read. And then um, I went to this 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 session that uh, Dan Kastner presented on, which was called Undifferentiated uh, Autoinflammatory Disease. And I thought, well, this will be good. And um, and it was good. It, I mean, the whole session was fabulous. Um, and I think that Dan was more demonstrative than usual and played this super sleuth role about how this whole thing played out uh, and it started with one patient and then three patients. But the idea was that these patients had an undiagnosed condition. One underwent a bone marrow biopsy. The pathologist looked at the bone marrow biopsy and was scratching her head saying, you know, I've seen this before, I don't know where. There are these vacuolar changes in these, you know, these bone marrow cells come back on Friday. And came back, Dan and the team came back on Friday and now she had two more cases. And she said, you look these people up. They have the exact same disease as this man. And sure enough, they did. They all had um, one, a clinical syndrome, which was similar to, they had the same UBA1 somatic mutation. Um, and the question was, what is this all about? They did further study, found 25 patients at the NIH who had the mutation. They're all male. They're all middle-aged. They all, a lot of them had relapsing polychondritis or Sweets-like syndrome or something else. What, Michael? Well, so relapsing polychondritis, they, a lot of them had been considered to have relapsing polychondritis because they had the presence of chondritis. But in retrospect, if we pull out the retrospectoscope, none of them actually have tracheal inflammation, which right. makes them not exactly like relapsing polychondritis. So it's this kind of chondritis overlap. I'm sorry to have interrupted. But th no, that's, that's, an important, that's a really important point because the constellation, uh, is, again, it's male, middle-aged, fever, rashes, that are neutrophilic-like rashes, neutrophilic-like pulmonary involvement, chondritis, increased risk of VTEs, venous thromboembolic events, you know, and then these bone marrow macules. Uh, and they would have been diagnosed with everything from myelodysplasia to polyautoritis nodosa. 
And so it became the VEXA syndrome, V for vacuoles, E for E1 ubiquitin activating enzyme, X being X-linked, A autoinflammatory, and S somatic mutation. If anything, it's a nice um, session to watch because it plays out in a very theatric kind of way. Um, and while this is going to be a very rare syndrome in the world of autoinflammatory, it I think, oh, maybe not so quick. It's, it's not clear how, how rare this will actually be. Um, the fact that they were able to find so many cases just on a quick review of, of a couple of cohorts suggests oh, that maybe it's more common than we thought. The phenotypic heterogeneity that's seen within this spectrum of people bearing that mutation is, is the most striking thing. When David Beck went for uh, genes that had somatic mosaicism in the absence of any specific unifying phenotype, that's what enabled him to find this was that he went for the gene. And so there's a number of different phenotypes. It's not clear what defines which different group these individuals fall in. But my wife, Amanda Umbrello, who's the staff clinician that runs the fever clinic with Dan Kastner, she noted that these were her sickest patients by far across the decade that she's worked in the, co in, in the group. So when, it's, when it became apparent, there was a cluster of them that she immediately was able to recognize that would have the same mutations because they were just so sick in the same way. And what I also find very peculiar is the association of autoinflammatory syndrome with myelodysplastic syndrome. We usually see myelodysplastic more in autoimmune disease, while in autoinflammatory polycytosis, unless we go into MAS, of course. So that's a very interesting, not something not we really see in autoinflammatory conditions. Wow. Makes it very unique in a way, I would say. I want to end with one, um, and... and I, I, I think it's, it's, I hope it's not too commercial, but the idea is this year, we adults had a milestone with uh, um, canakinumab being approved for adult stills disease, largely based on an arthritis clinical trial. Um, and, you know, I think we all have our own patterns of how we use IL-1 inhibition in patients with, that are going to be diagnosed with stills disease. I'd be interested in the other authors, uh, other uh, investigators here telling me you, how you use IL-1 inhibition in your clinics. Do you still want to go with the shorter acting drug, has these indications. It's been approved for systemic JIA for a while now. Um, Michael, how does, uh, does, has your use of IL-1 inhibition changed over time? So uh, it, within kids, I generally like to observe uh, with anakinra first, and a lot of that has to do with practice and habits. But the thought is that it's quick on and it's quick off. So we're going to see quickly if it works. And if it works and we need to make a switch to a longer acting IL-1 blocker, then we can switch to canakinumab at that point. But if it doesn't work, we can rapidly titrate the dose upwards to a maximal dose where we would expect response if we were going to see it. And then we can switch at that point to another drug. Um, within the adult community, uh, there's been some resistance. And, and at the NIH, canakinumab is not on the formulary. So we would still use anakinra as a first agent and then try to interface with insurance companies to get canakinumab to give on top of that. Olga, what, what, what's uh, changed for you over the years? You, you were using Ilaris like a long before anybody, anyone else I know, but um, how, what's your approach when you're newly so, diagnosed patient? Yeah, so it depends on their severity, of course. And I try to start IL-1 inhibitors as early as possible because it really makes a huge difference in their uh, treatment course mm -hmm. and then in their outcomes. Uh, my approach usually is what I can get earliest. And it truly depends on what we have in formula in the hospital, if it's inpatient patient or what insurance prefers 
uh, as the first line. What I've noticed lately uh, that when it comes to outpatient approvals, kinekinumab is getting easier to get approved. Uh, so I have less resistance from the insurance companies to get approved so we can get started early, but still Anakinra uh, seems to be the, the, the easiest one to get first. A lot of times we still go to Anakinra as a first line. I feel like Rilonacept and Ilaris uh, provide better coverage for my patients just because they are longer acting uh, IL-1 inhibitors. And I have a feeling that even if you start with a shorter acting one first, we, you, most of the time, I tend to proceed with a longer acting one later on, either Rilonacept or uh, Kenekinumab, whatever we can get approved later on. Bella, how does that sit with you? I think inpatient, uh, pretty much 100% anakinra, just because you want to see the, you know, formularies, uh, like policies and whatnot. Outpatient, I think, uh, a lot more uh, kenakinumab than uh, anakinra uh, because eventually I feel like uh, even the people who need it, I mean, either 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 some patients don't need a biologic and, you know, maybe they're just okay with a little bit of prednisone or methotrexate or something. But at some point when, or they're severe enough that I've decided they need some sort of biologic, um, if, if I can get the insurance to approve the kenakinumab, that's easier. Uh, if not, then you go through the Anakinra route. Uh, but it's it's a lot more insurance-driven than us-driven in some sense. But um, maybe yesterday, like these days, it's getting better. Uh, it's easier to get the canakinumab. Well, the FDA approval will help. And, you know, uh, honestly, the, the study that you reviewed today, if that gets published, that'll help because it helps you get, you know, Anakinra paid for when the insurance doesn't want to pay for that. So anyway, great discussion. I want to thank the panelists for... Um, bringing forward their views of the meeting. Um, we'll talk again next year. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.